So here we are. We are in our last week of this four-week series, and we're going to actually tackle the last four chapters. So it might feel like rather daunting. But to do that, you know, as we typically do, we talk about this big idea or the main idea. And the main idea coming out of this these last four chapters, and again, Song of Solomon has to do with primarily sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. And so this last section, this main idea, is really going to come out of two verses. And I've mentioned one of those at length. It is chapter 6, verse 3, which is, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. There is a sense in this book that a vast amount of major, vast amount of motivation for how this couple acts is this understanding that they've made a commitment to each other. So if you are a husband or a wife, whatever, you probably have on a ring finger a wedding band. I know, actually, I had um, breakfast or, or coffee with a couple guys this week, and they actually had tattooed on there. But all of those things mean something. When your husband or your wife at your wedding ceremony place that ring on your finger, they're saying, you belong to me. And the other way, you belong to me. And it's significant because it's a reminder to you, you belong to your spouse. And it's a reminder for everybody around, you belong to somebody. And that is significant, especially for those of us who have entered into a relationship with our spouses according to God's design and desire for marriage. That we've declared this commitment that we're making to one another. That we want to become one in Christ as a couple. And we're going to follow his commands and his desires, which means at times that we love unconditionally. That we serve and sacrifice our spouses in the way that, frankly, they don't deserve. But the reverse is true as well. The way they express love to you is sometimes what we don't deserve. And so there's an aspect of it is remembering what that commitment means that I belong to my wife and my wife belongs to me. Second part is a vision. And that vision comes out of chapter 8, verse 7. And, that, and it describes it this way. This verse says, Many waters cannot quench love. And actually, 6 and 7 both describe the power of love and the incredible value of love between a husband and wife. 7 says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. That's how powerful it is. And then moves on to, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, in other words, he says, I can buy love with, with all the money that I have, he'd be utterly despised because you can't. You can't. This is something that grows between a husband and wife and develops over time and becomes something that we desire to be magnificent before the Lord. And so with that in mind, we're going to take a look at these last four chapters with, and we're going to see some great examples of how love is expressed when we know to whom we belong. And so, here we go. Chapter 5, verse 2. Let me give you a little setting for this. Last week we ended uh, the message with talking about the wedding and the wedding night. And five one ends with this celebration, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. We start... Chapter 5, verse 2, some time has passed. We're not certain how much time has passed, but I would say it's safe to assume that the honeymoon is over. How we know that is because 
She's in bed, and he's out doing something else. Generally speaking, on your honeymoon, you guys are going to bed at the same time. So I think some time has passed. So here we go. Chapter 5, verse 2. And this is the way I want to describe the first example of what takes place between couples when they're living out that commitment that we belong to another. And that is that we are motivated to love unconditionally. Chapter 5, verse 2. She says this. And again, this could be a dream. This could be reality. This could be a parallel to chapter 3, this, this, this dream sequence. But she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of night. He's come in. She's already in bed. Um, he's come late. And he says, you know what? I have something on my mind, and I'd like to be intimate. Her response is this. Verse 3. I had put off my garments. How could I put them on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Soil them. She's saying, are you kidding me? This is not the most convenient time for you to approach me this way. And so she has a decision to make. She has a, a choice here, right? He has approached her, and he has expressed his desire, his desire, and she's saying, this is not really good timing. And the reality is, husbands and wives, you know that there are times in which there are certain different expectations in terms of sexual love. And so she has a choice. And she says, I, this doesn't make sense. Why would you want to demand this of me right now? And so verse 4 says this. We see that she says, My beloved put his hand to the latch, and then she has a change of heart. And my hands, excuse me, and my heart was thrilled within me. She's rethinking this. You know, my husband, the one I love, my beloved, the one I'm committed to, has approached me, and this is not a convenient time for me. So my beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. So I rose to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. All that symbolic language of about love is in the air, and then she goes to respond to him and open the door to invite him in, but but her lover, her beloved, her husband has turned and gone. This next statement fascinates me. I've read this over and over again, and this next statement says more and more and more to me every time I read it. She says this, My soul failed me when he spoke. What does that mean? She's obviously referring to that invitation that her husband made when he first knocked on the door. But this perspective that she has is remarkable. She says, my soul failed me. In other words, I didn't do what now I want to do. When I think about that, I think of how much that illustrates this idea that in the context of marriage, so oftentimes we respond how we feel rather than reflecting and responding what our commitment is. And so now she rethinks this and said, I wish I had said yes. Now, so let me explain what I'm saying and what I'm not saying, okay? Just to make this clear. What I'm not saying, both husbands and wives, 
whenever the man desires, and he knocks on the door and says, okay, babe, that the wife's supposed to say, okay, no matter what. I'm not saying that at all. But this is what I am saying. What a great lesson to learn about someone who says, I would much rather respond, not how I feel, but reflect into the commitment that I've made to my spouse. How often times do we respond out of emotion and how we feel at the moment towards our spouses rather than reflecting on the commitment that we've made towards them? Again, understand what I'm saying, what I'm not saying. This is just a snapshot and just one aspect of marriage, one aspect of intimacy, one aspect of love. But she says, you know, I didn't respond unconditionally. I responded conditionally. The reality is this was not convenient time for me. But I don't want to have a marriage that's dictated on how I feel at the time. I want a marriage that's dictated based upon my commitment. Because I belong to her and she belongs to me. And so then, despite how she was reactive, she now becomes proactive and she pursues him. The rest of verse 6 says this, I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And then, interestingly, just like in chapter 2, about going outside and trying to find her, or 3, excuse me, it says, The watchmen found me as they, as they went about in the city. They beat me and they bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen on the walls. Again, it's a little bit unclear to what degree this is figurative or literal. We don't really know. But this is certainly what we can say, is that this is a painful experience for her, whether it's verbal or actually physical. This is painful for her to realize the situation she's gotten herself in. And then so she says in verse 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him that I am sick with love. That phrase, sick with love, takes us back to chapter 2, where she expressed a desire, I want to be with this man. And she says again, I'm sick with love. I want to be with this man. Which leads us to, essentially, there's two more examples I'm going to talk about right now in terms of what happens between a couple that understand their commitment to one another. The first one is this. There is a public affirmation of your spouse and your commitment to them. So notice what happens at this point in time. Again, she says, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find him, tell them that you tell me him that I am sick with love. And their response is very interesting because this passage, it begins with the daughters of Jerusalem and their response to this question. She's going to talk, and then they're going to respond differently based upon what she has to share about this man of hers. To what degree are they understanding the dilemma she's in? We don't really know, but they say with this invitation to help me find my husband, this is how they respond. What is your beloved more than another beloved? They compliment her, O most beautiful among women, but what is your beloved more than another beloved that you endure this? What is the big deal about this guy? Maybe she's a little bit familiar with this situation, and they're thinking, this guy would allow you to be in this situation right now, and what kind of a man is he? 
Essentially, she's invited, or so they've invited her to do some husband bashing, right? Tell us about this guy. Well, you know, men, but she's in bite. Instead, listen to the words that she says to affirm this man, this beloved of hers. Publicly, she makes this declaration. Verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like the bed of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His, His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedeckled with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I'll tell you what kind of a guy my husband is. How powerful that is. When you think about the words that we say about our spouses out in public, what that does, the impact that it has. First of all, for you, as you think and you affirm your commitment to this man or this woman, how strong and encouraging it is to your commitment. I belong to him. I belong to her when we say that. There's also the impact that it has on others. So I mentioned that they begin off, they begin questioning her commitment. But once she says all this, they are in complete agreement. Chapter 6, verse 1. Where's your most beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? They're convinced. This sounds like a great guy. We'll help you find him. We'll help you find him. There is power in words. There's power in what we say and what we affirm to our own commitment and what we express to other people. I mentioned before, my wife is a a rehab nurse and she works up at PVH. And as a rehab nurse, there's the patients will often, because of an injury or a medical condition, be spending more time at the hospital. And because of that, they get to know each other really well in terms of those who are caring and the patients. And so there's a, a degree of comfort level, and sometimes too great of a degree of comfort level, especially with my very attractive wife. She was telling me a story about a couple months ago that there was this gentleman that she was caring for, and he asked her for something when she was in the room, like, like maybe he had his cell phone, you know, on the other side of the room, whatever, and he wanted to ask her to bring it to him, and he said, um, hey, babe, will you bring me my cell phone? To which my wife replied, excuse me, but that word is reserved only for my husband. And I'm like, that's right. <laughs> and I'm like, were you wearing your wedding band, you know, and, and that name tag I made you, which says, hi, my name's Sherry, and yes, I am married, okay? I mean, that's what I want to say, but you know what? That encourages me to know that and to hear that that she expresses this publicly, she belongs to me. There's something important about that. When you declare, 
I'm a happily married man. I'm a happily married woman. I love my husband. I love my wife. And here's the reasons why. Think about how that encourages you and other people, and especially when that story gets back to your spouse. But there's also this aspect of what happens privately. And that's what takes place next. But let me just wrap it up with chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, because essentially this is what happens then. He explains that to that we, I have found him. And so she says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the garden, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And so then that probably motivates him once again to affirm privately his commitment to her and his love and adoration for her. Begins in chapter 6, verse 4. And this is what he says. He says, You are beautiful as, as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing, all of them which bear twins. Not one of them has lost its young. That's familiar language. Okay, so he's got kind of one game, but he keeps on going back to it, and it seems to work. You still have your teeth like I first dated you? Okay, that's great. Verse 7, your cheeks are like the halves of pomegranate behind your veil. We get to this very strange portion, which is kind of the elephant in the room when it comes to Solomon. He says, you know, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number, but my dove, my perfect one, you're the only one. There's a lot with that. We're not going to kind of get into it, but he somehow is affirming her she's the only one, despite all those others. Complicated, I get it, very complicated. But once again, affirming her. And says then, the young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this that looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? She then says and affirms this love expression she comes back to some of the same type of statements. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me before among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. There's something going on as far as pursuing him. And again, because of our time, it's a little more complicated to get into all the details. Others say, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. And then he says, why should you look upon the Shulamite, my wife, as, a, as upon a dance between two armies? And then he launches into this lengthy description of her and her beauty. Once again, this private moment that he has with her. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O daughter, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels. The work of a master hand. Your navel is rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like the ivory tower. Your eyes are like pools in Hashbun by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks up toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel. Your flowing locks are like purple. 
A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your statue is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may that your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Words of affirmation for her. Let me say just a couple thoughts. I kind of described before this idea that words are very, very powerful, incredibly powerful. Proverbs twelve eighteen says this, reckless words pierce like a sword. Proverbs eighteen twenty one: the tongue has the power of life and death. Psychologists tell us for every one negative comment that comes our way, we need seven positive to counterbalance. Men and women in the privacy of your home, in the privacy of your bedroom, choose your words carefully. They're very, very powerful. But how powerful they can be when you affirm your husband or your wife. When you look to the positive and not the negative. When you seek after and find those things that you can affirm them and build them up in. How incredibly powerful that is. And then one thing that probably needs to be mentioned, hearing the rather erotic tone near the end, and that is, wives, you've probably already figured this thing out. If your husband is madly in love with you, and he has any time to reflect upon you and think about you, it's probably going to end up there. He's probably going to want to climb the palm tree and take in your delights. She responds, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. She's thinking, you know, I'll bet I can get more than just that one bedroom painted, maybe the whole palace palace today. But interestingly, what takes place next in her response? It's kind of the fourth Example, and that is it. It motivates us to celebrate our love. There can be this aspect where she says, This guy has got an insatiable desire. How can I keep up? And how can I satisfy him? I wish he wasn't just like this. But no, she doesn't. Look at verse 10. She delights and celebrates in the desire that her husband has for her. Verse 10, I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. She celebrates that. She says, that is good. And according to God's design and plan, that is good. Wives, you want his desire to be all about you. And you want to feed that. So it is only about you. And so then she says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early into the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded. She's encouraging this. Whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. 
And then we have this very interesting section, which I think is, is really kind of captures the first five verses. It's a little bit weird. Um, it's tied to the kind of the cultural norm at that time. You know, if, you, if you've been around the world, you know that the, in many other cultures, the public expression or display of affection between friends and, and, and family, co-family, whatever, sometimes there's kisses and things like that. Um, I'm not going to go into today, but I have a very interesting story about greet each other with a holy kiss and two Ukrainian pastor friends of mine. It's a weird story, but I can tell you about that someday. But you understand, there's, there's cultural norms. And apparently there's a cultural norm here where husbands and wives do not show that public d- display of affection. But you can do it within siblings, which would explain kind of why she says what she says. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's womb, my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. And then for the third time in this book, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And I think the best explanation that I can come up with is because they desire to express this even publicly, and it's, it's rather forbidden. And so she says then, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I wakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. She is so desirous of this at all moment and all time, she can't help but just celebrate love at all moments, publicly, privately. And then we come to verse 6 and 7, which again is to give each one of us this vision of what can be. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It is a good thing to know that you belong to one other person. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. How good it is to celebrate the love between a husband and woman, between a husband and a wife. I want to give a quick little commercial for the marriage retreat coming up this weekend. Because maybe you're reading this and you go, I can't see that ever happening between my husband and my wife and myself, or between my wife and myself. And you're wondering, could that ever be? So Jeremy and Kate Porbey are going to share their story um, on Saturday morning. They've got a great story, an incredibly encouraging story. And Sharon and I had a chance to hear details about that story. But it just reminded me of the hope in a God who can do anything. And how powerful that can be. So I'm grateful for you guys being willing to do that and sharing your story. It'll be an encouragement to everybody. So thank you. Which leads us to the last point I want to make, and that is that when we know we belong to another, this is what couples do. 
they remember their love story, and they tell that love story over and over and over again. The very first week, I, I mentioned the fact that Sherry and I have all these stacks of love letters. And it, was, I, it, was, it took me off guard, but I remember the, in the first service particularly, when I mentioned there, there was a number of people who went, Aww. And that's, it is an awe moment. Because we get to go look back and read. And we've done that. It's been quite a while. Maybe we need to pull those things out again. And to read that. But I thought, how great would it be if couples would have a date night? And this is how you would start off the conversation. Remember when? And then the other one would go, remember when? And remember when? And how cool it would be and how encouraging it would be to remember those reasons why you fell in love in the very first time and why you committed yourself to each other and how God brought you together and to celebrate your love story. And so I think what happens right here is that we go back in chapter 8 to the very, very beginning. If you remember, there are brothers that in chapter 1, verse 6, she says, do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. I think he's, they're going back to that. And so the others say this in verse 8. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with the boards of cedar. I think she had brothers who were very protective from a very early age. They were tough on her, making her work the vineyards, but they cared deeply about her from that standpoint. And she remembers that. And then she says in verse 10, I was a wall. Even after I grew, I was still a wall. And my breasts now were like towers. Then I was one in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon has now discovered her. He now has eyes upon her. Verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Harmon, and he let out the vineyards to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. He rents out these vineyards that he owns. But my vineyard, remember she's talking about herself, my very own, when she uses that language, is before me, you, before me. You, O Solomon, may have thousands and the keeper of the fruit, 200, essentially, but I belong to you. And then the last two verses in this reflecting back on this love story. Oh, you who dwell in the gardens with companions, listen to your voice. Let me hear it. Let me hear your commitment. Let me hear what has taken place in your heart. And she says, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices, celebrating that love they had for one another. I'm going to wrap this up. Going back to the very first week, I mentioned as an overview of, the, of this book that many people have said, this is a simply an allegory. This is a story about God and his love for us, his people. I don't believe so. I believe this is a story about Solomon and his bride. However, I also mentioned that the New Testament talks about a mystery of what every married couple is supposed to be as an example 
and a revelation of God's love for his bride through Christ. And so there is a love story that I hope that all couples in here are building. That your love story is growing. But there's also a bigger love story that we're a part of. And that bigger love story is the love story of God for you and me. See, you and I can say we belong to our spouses. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And there's that I belong aspect. But for those of us who have trusted Christ, there's a different and a greater I belong. I belong to him. I belong to him. Um, up on the screen, I want to share with you how I begin most of my mornings. I don't know if we have got that. It's uh, my personal creed. Um, we'll see if it pops up here. My personal creed, I start off and I, I, I read and pray through a number of paragraphs because I just need this. I need to remember who God is. I need to remember who I am. I need to remember daily what he's done for me and how I belong to him. And it starts off this way. I belong to the Most High God who reigns and rules over all. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 23, it starts off this. You've been bought with a price. So good for me to remember, I've been bought with a price. I belong to Christ because I've been bought with a price. Communion is a great opportunity for us to remember the price that was paid, that we were purchased, that we were redeemed, that we were bought back and reconciled to God in relationship with him. So we do that. We celebrate often to remember we've been bought with a price. And so you have an opportunity to express that in terms of celebrating communion, taking the cracker, which represents God's or Christ's body and, and his blood, and dipping in the cup as, as his blood. But I want to add one more aspect of worship in communion today. There at the bottom of your notes, and I think also up on the screen, I want to show you this, this Hebrew letter. We have it up there? Okay. So Hebrew does not have words for, for possession like mine, yours, or his. Instead, it's a suffix. And so Hebrew goes from right to left. And if you see that on the end, that means his, whatever that noun is. So I'm an adopted son. Son, Ben. I'm Ben-O. I'm his son. And maybe just as an act of worship today, you kind of go, I want to remember that. I want to remember that ultimately I'm his. And so... I've got my little temporary tattoo to remember. I'm his. A way to remind me over and over again, that's who I belong to. That's why we've got that table up there and markers, if that's an act of worship that you want to participate in today. As a reminder throughout your day, I've been bought with a price. I'm his. Let's pray.